0: It really has been a pleasure for me, thank you, to be here this weekend. I, I don't do this very often, but I want to tell you all, um, I'm really impressed with this church, uh, from the young people to the youth, I mean, I mean to the uh, session, the elders that I met yesterday. Um, I think this is an exciting place. Uh, I, I rejoice and praise the Lord for what he's doing here. Okay, so, Bitterness. Uh, material I'm covered today, in case you can't get it all, is in this little booklet I wrote a few years ago on bitterness. Okay, so Fred came home late from the office one night, and after snarfing down his reheated supper, he went into the bathroom drawer to uh, get a tube of toothpaste to brush his teeth. And as soon as he opened the drawer, he noticed that his wife, Wilma, had squashed the toothpaste in the middle, for the umpteenth time. And he flew into a rage. That woman, she's always squeezing the toothpaste in the middle. I've asked her a thousand times to roll it up from the end, but does she listen to me? Never. I might as well talk to the toothpaste tube itself rather than ask her to do something for me. She's the most stubborn, pig-headed woman I've ever met. How would she like it if I ignored her incessant requests? She wouldn't like it one bit. Well, I'm about through with this. I think it's time for me to teach her a lesson. She hates it when people leave the cap off of the toothpaste tube. So after she gets in bed tonight, I'm going to sneak out of bed, and I'm going to open the drawer, and I'm going to take that squash tube of toothpaste, and I'm going to uncork it. I take the cap off and I'm going to put it right in front of the vanity right on the top of the counter and this way when she comes in in the morning she'll see that and she'll understand how much it bothers me when she squashes the toothpaste tube in the middle and maybe some of that toothpaste will harden in the neck of the tube overnight and when she goes to squeeze it out she won't be able to squeeze it out and maybe if I'm lucky he was an Arminian <clears throat> I'll she'll she'll look in the tube and squeeze it and a little pill will come out and pop her between the eyes now, when you see this kind of overreaction to a relatively small thing, like a squashed tube of toothpaste, um, you're not really dealing with anger. What you're dealing with is bitterness. I mean, really, how much emotional energy should be expended on a squashed tube of toothpaste? Oh, she squashed a tube of toothpaste in the middle. Well. Maybe it's time for us to get two tubes. I mean, how, how much energy do you want to waste on that? But when you see all of this energy, you're dealing with bitterness. So what is bitterness? Bitterness is the result of not forgiving others. If you're bitter at someone, it means that you've not truly forgiven that person. To put it another way, bitterness is the result of responding improperly, unbiblically to an offense. The scriptures liken bitterness to a root. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, roots have to be planted. So let me ask you, what do you suppose is the seed that when planted on the soil of your hearts sprouts into a root of bitterness? Um, unforgiveness, I'm using synonymously with bitterness. Bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, I'm seeing them pretty much as the same. But what is the seed that when planted on the soil of our heart, produces bitterness. Generally speaking, it's a hurt. When someone hurts you, when someone offends you, it's as if that person dropped a seed on the soil of your heart. And at that point, you've got to do something with that seed. You have to either reach down and pick it up and pluck it away, which is what you should do, or you can begin to cultivate it and water it and fertilize it. And before too long, it starts growing into a big, thick, hairy, ugly root of bitterness. So, uh, biblically, so how do you pick that seed of hurt up and flick it away? Wh- what does that involve? <coughs> how do you do that? Forgetting? Forgetting. Well, we'll talk about that. Forgetting is um, is... The result of forgiving, it's not the means of it, and um, it's not necessary to forget in order to forgive. But if you forgive, it will become easier to forget. Well, what you do is you have to forgive, right? The person sins against you, and if it's a real offense, you have to forgive that person. What do you mean real offense? Well, okay, if I do something that offends you, and what I did is a sin, then I've got to repent, right? But if what I did offend you to to offend you to hurt your feelings was not a sin in other words it didn't offend God do I have to repent? Do I? Do I? If it's not a sin do I have to repent? No, who has to repent? You do. You have to repent. You need to change your thinking, right? Metanoia, rethink what you're telling yourself. You've got to change your thinking. You've got to repent. For being offended over something that I did or said that did not offend God. Right? Are you with me? Okay. Now, what if it really was a sin? What do you do? Then you have to forgive. And you have two options as a Christian in terms of forgiveness. You can forgive someone in your heart, like Jesus said in the book of Mark 11, I think. If your brother, uh, when you stand praying, he says, forgive you can cover it in love, in other words. Is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression? You can overlook it. You can cover it in love. But if you can't overlook it, maybe it's too big or you, you try to overlook it and just can't, or you try to cover it up, but the person keeps on throwing the covers off because he does it over and over again. At that point, then you have to do what Jesus said you should do in Matthew 18 and Luke 17. You have to go to your brother and convict him about his sin. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. As you go to him, you convict him of his sin. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness. You go and you convict him of his sin and hope that he'll recognize it. And he'll ask you for forgiveness. And then you verbally grant him forgiveness. That's the idea. But if you don't do that. If you don't forgive and you start to cultivate that seed, then sooner or later it's going to turn into a root of bitterness. Veronica's best friend, Betty, had been planning a sleepover for all the girls in the youth group. All summer long, the party was the topic of discussion. Everyone was going to be there. Three days before the sleepover, Veronica found out that some old family friends were coming over the weekend of the party. And although Betty's party had been planned several months before, Veronica's father wanted her to drop her silly party plans, as he put it, and stay home with their house guests. Veronica knew that all of her friends were going to be at the sleepover. In addition, um, she made a commitment to go to the party long before she knew about the family guests that were coming over. Veronica's father insisted that she stay home. He had just dropped a seed of hurt onto the soil of her heart." Now we can trace the um, the process of this growing root of bitterness through her thought life. She says to herself, I can't believe he's doing this to me. I've been planning to go to the sleepover all summer long. Well, she just takes her finger and sticks the seed about an inch or half inch into the ground. He's so selfish, all he thinks about is what he wants. Now she's taking some soil and covering the seed up. He's never willing to let me have fun if he thinks his precious plans might be upset. Now she's aerating the soil. Why did I get stuck with a father like him? Now she's watering the seed. He's such a loser. She's fertilizing her hurt, and it starts to sprout. I can't wait till I can get out of here. Then nobody will be able to spoil my fun. Now her weed starts to sprout. Her seed starts to sprout, and its roots start to grow deeper, become thicker and hairier and uglier. And finally, he can't do this to me, she says to herself. I'm going to give him a taste of his own medicine. I'm going to embarrass him so badly when the company comes that he'll wish that he'd sent me to the sleepover in a limousine. <laughs> so she puts the finishing finishing touches on the greenhouse which houses her stinkweed and she begins charging her friends admission to come see it. All because she did. All because am I on? All because she responded unbiblically to that hurt. She allowed her hurt feelings to paralyze her to keep her from taking the appropriate action and instead she replayed the offense over and over again in her mind. Now of bitterness. Over the years I've been counseling for 30 years over the years I've uh, come up with seen noticed quite a few evidences of bitterness in people and you know, the Bible says the heart knows its own bitterness, so chances are if you're bitter or resentful, you have a pretty good idea. But um, if you have any doubts, maybe you should consider how many of these evidences are going on in your heart, in your life. First of all, when you're bitter, there's a difficulty in your ability to resolve conflicts. Trying to resolve conflicts with someone who is bitter is like trying to build a skyscraper on a place where there is no foundation. The, the bitterness will doom the project before it ever gets off the ground. Then, there are various acts of vengeance, whether it takes the form of backbiting verbal comments, a spiteful remark to an offender's face, or some kind of physical altercation. Whether it's, whether it's verbal or physical When you execute your own vengeance, you can write it down. There's some level of bitterness in your heart. Withdrawal. When we give our offenders the silent treatment or the cold shoulder we are likewise being vindictive. We're saying essentially, look, I've tried telling you how much it bothers me when you do this, and you don't get it, you don't care, so the only thing I know is to give you a taste of your own medicine, and when I think you have some understanding of how much it bugs me when you do that or don't do that, I'll start talking to you again, you know, in a day or two or a week or two. Now, it may not be exactly in those words, but that's the essence of the cold shoulder. Do you see how vindictive that is? Outbursts of anger. As we saw with Fred... Bitterness tempts us to overreact emotionally. When we're bitter, we don't just see one offense. When, when Fred opened that drawer and saw that squash tube of toothpaste, his mind did not focus on that tube of toothpaste. This computer screen flashed up in his mind, and it said, specific things I have asked Wilmer to do over the years, and she blatantly refused to do them. And here's entry number 6,427. That's when you know you're bitter. Out um, Biting sarcasm, ironic intonations, snide remarks, mean-spirited joking, caustic comments, scornful speech, and other such forms of sarcasm often generated in a resentful heart. I mean, there's a time and a place for sarcasm. Irony is a valid form of communication, and it's in the Bible quite a a bit, but you've got to be very, very careful. When, When Paul used irony, he knew, and he used sarcasm like with the Galatians. He knew his audience. He knew that they could take it, and we just have to be very careful with that. Condescending communication. Speaking to your offender as though he were a child or an inferior is not only a possible indication of bitterness, it's contrary to Philippians 2.3. With humility of mind, let every man, um, with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. When you have a critical, condemnatory, accusatory, judgmental attitude, it's indicative of resentment. It's often a retaliatory motive is behind those kinds of critical statements. Then there's suspicion and distrust. When bitterness causes a breakdown in communication, as it commonly does, the parties become suspicious of each other. And then small offenses that would, under other circumstances, be dismissed with, oh, he didn't mean anything by that. I've done it a hundred times myself. Or he's just having a bad day. That's not really what he's like. Are seen as much more serious offenses than they really are. Intolerance, bitterness disposes us not to put up with, not to forbear with our offenders idiosyncratic, in other words, is non-sinful behavior. Resentment, in other words, makes mountains out of mold hills. Hypersensitivity, treating a, a pinprick as though it were a knife through one's heart may likewise be indicative of an unforgiving spirit. And if you're a proud person, then it's going to make it even easier for you to be hypersensitive. Proud people are easily offended and exaggerate the offenses that are done against them. It's sort of like, well, so-and-so may have thought that was a small thing, but you haven't offended so-and-so. You haven't offended... Any old person, you've offended me, and my anger is not so easily propitiated as his. (laughs) And that's the sentiment behind someone who is proudly oversensitive. Then there's impatience. Patience involves being able to keep a biblical perspective about our trials by not magnifying a tolerable trial so that it appears to our minds as an intolerable one. Bitterness causes us to lose this biblical perspective. It magnifies forgivable offenses so that they seem unforgivable in our minds and attempts us to resort to unbiblical means of delivering ourselves from the trial rather than waiting on God to work through our peacemaking attempts to resolve the conflict biblically. Disrespect. If the person at whom we're bitter is an authority figure our contempt for that person will eventually make its way out of our hearts into our mouths in the form of irreverence. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. An evil man out of the e- evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Rebellion against authority. Rebellion hardly ever comes apart from bitterness. Usually when someone is rebellion, rebellious, they go through a process. First, they're hurt. They have that, that wounded spirit. Then they become um, bitter. After bitterness, they become angry. You say, I would think anger comes before bitterness. No, I'm not talking about momentary anger. I'm talking about characterological anger. They become characterized by anger, like the angry man in the book of Proverbs. After uh, anger comes... Um, Insubordination, right? Stubbornness, rebellion is as the center of uh, witchcraft, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. You know what it means to be stubborn? The idea is that which is uh, that of a backsliding heifer. Imagine you have this heifer or this donkey, and she's got a leaf around her neck, and her master is trying to urge her to come forward, and she takes her front two hooves and she sticks them in the ground, and she does this kind of a thing. That's what it means to be stubborn and insubordination, insubordinate. And then after that comes full-blown rebellion. Then there's misuse of authority. When bitterness towards a subordinate is in the heart of an authority, it can produce a domineering, dictatorial, or tyrannical attitude that demands needless exacting of obedience. Depression. If I were to continually run around the campus, I don't know how many laps it would take me, but sooner or later, my physical energy would be depleted, and I would be physically exhausted. I don't know how many laps it would take, but eventually, I'd be tired. I'd become exhausted. Well, it requires emotional energy to maintain a grudge. And when you don't forgive someone quickly, it's sort of like emotionally running around the block over and over and over again. After a period of time, your emotional energies are going to be depleted, depleted and you're going to be emotionally exhausted or depressed. Doubts regarding salvation. Jesus, after teaching his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, said to them, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Our unwillingness to forgive A repentant individual, in light of all that we've been forgiven of by Christ, is really a terrible thing. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? And then finally, remembering with great specificity the details of the offense. Bitterness eulogizes the particulars. It's actually possible by playing the event over and over again in your mind to change the facts. There's a term for this called confabulation. You think about something over and over again. Little by little you, start, you can start to change the details and by the time you know, you've meditated on it, and mused over it for a, f- a week or two or three or four, um, the events actually change and you can't tell the difference between what really happened and what you've convinced yourself happened. Okay, now, what is forgiveness? Jesus said, I'm sorry, the writer of the Hebrews quoting the Old Testament says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins against them no more. So when God says he remembers our sins against us no more, what does that mean? Does that mean he has amnesia? No, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient. No, it doesn't mean that he just blanks out. It means that he doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't impute them to our account. But when we put our trust in Christ, he actually imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. He puts the gazillion dollars worth of righteousness that we need in order to get into heaven, into our account, and Christ, of course, takes the penalty for the sins that we have committed. But fundamentally, this is a promise I will remember your sins against you no more. And that's what forgiveness basically is. It's a promise that we make. I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then he says this. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying... I repent, you must forgive him. How did the disciples handle that? They said, okay, that makes sense to me. Seven times a day, imagine someone comes up to you seven times a day, pops you in the nose, and then after each time says, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? The disciples said, you've got to be kidding and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said to them, it's not faith, guys, it's something else. If you had faith as a seed of mustard, you could say to this mulberry tree, be, planted, uh, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Sit down, you've been working all day. Put your feet up, have some lemonade, some iced tea, can I get you something? Is that what he says? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done only that which is our duty to do. And so he says, guys, it's not more faith you need, it's more faithfulness. You shouldn't, Think of forgiveness as a feeling um, or as something that requires faith. It's simply a matter of obedience. It's a matter of making a promise and doing what I've told you to do. It's not that hard. So let's go through some Bible basics on forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is to be granted only if a sin has been committed against you. Jesus said, if your brother sins. He didn't say if he doesn't give you what you want. If he lets you down, if he hurts your feelings, or if he profoundly disappoints you. Your, your brother may do any and all of these things in the, purpose, in the process of sinning against you, but he's not in need of your forgiveness unless he <laughs> sins against you. Now, if what he's done to offend you is not a sin, that's not to say you can't go talk to him about it, but you're not going to be rebuking him or convicting him because he has sinned. Secondly... Sometimes the offended party must initiate forgiveness. If you can't overlook the transgression or cover it in love, you're obligated as a Christian to go to a brother who has sinned against you and rebuke him. Sometimes we must go to our sinning brother with the intention of being able to grant him forgiveness. Now you say, now wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. He sinned against me. Why does his sin obligate me to go to him? Didn't Jesus say somewhere that he's supposed to come to me? Yeah, he did. In Matthew 5.23, Jesus says, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift beside the altar, drop what you're doing, you know, first be reconciled to your brother, and then be, uh, then come and get an offer your gift. I mean, you know, Jesus says you've got to take care of this before Sunday, basically. But we're not looking at Matthew five. That passage was written to the offendee, uh, the, offendee the, 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 the offender. I'm sorry. That passage is talking to the offender. We're talking and looking at the offender's response. You are the offended party, so Jesus says you're the one who has to go. You have the knowledge, and you're the one who has to go. I think it's really brilliant how the Lord set this up you know, both parties are supposed to go. He, he doesn't want any loose ends dangling in the breeze between Christians. Whether you're the offended person or whether you're, you're the <coughs> offending person, he wants you to go. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. There's urgency there. And the idea is the one who knows about the offense, whether it's the offender or the offendee, uh, the one who knows is the one who goes. Okay, let's say that. The one who knows is the one who goes. All right. Third, forgiveness is costly. When you forgive someone, it costs you something that's tremendously expensive. It costs you the price of the offense that you forgive. More importantly, what it costs you, and and I don't want to minimize the hurt that some of you have gone through. I know sometimes we're called on to forgive some very awful, horrible things, but... What it costs you to forgive is minutia compared to what the Lord Jesus has forgiven you of. That's why unforgiveness is such a hideous sin in the eyes of him who's the judge of the whole earth. You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And so, again, in light of how much you and I have been forgiven by God for you to not forgive those who offended you is wickedness. It doesn't matter how much the offense you're struggling to forgive hurts you by comparison to your offenses against God and the hurt you put his son through The offense that hurt you is minutia. It's even more wicked for you as a Christian not to forgive than your pagan friends who have not experienced firsthand so great a forgiveness as you have and who have not been given the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive. Never forget, the debt that you owe God for your sins is humanly incalculable and absolutely unpayable. You'll never be able to repay God for the trillions of dollars worth of debt your sin has incurred in the bank of heaven. It's a debt that's been totally paid for by the death of Christ on the cross, and to him you are now eternally indebted. Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is the judge who sent his son to die in your place so that he could slam the gavel on the bench and say, the penalty has been paid, your debt has been forgiven. you are free to go. What ingratitude it is for Christians not to forgive others there, offen- uh, others uh, who have sinned against them? Dare we slap him in the face by refusing to forgive those petty little offenses in light of all that he's done for us? Number four: forgiveness is fundamentally a promise. In his insightful book, From forgiving, Forgiven to Forgiving, J. Adams explains When God forgives, he goes on record. He says so. He declares, I will not remember your sins. Isn't that wonderful? When he forgives, God lets us know that he will no longer hold our sins against us. If forgiveness were merely an emotional exchange, we would not know that we were forgiven. But praise God we do because forgiveness is a process at the end of which God declares the matter of sin has been dealt with once for all. Now what is this declaration? What does God do when he goes on record saying that our sins are forgiven? God makes a promise. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a promise. So what am I promising to do? Well you're promising basically to do three things. You're promising not to use the offender's transgressions against him in the future now here we're talking about not so much forgiving somebody in your heart we're talking about when you verbally grant someone forgiveness right when I say I forgive you I'm making a promise to do three things first I'm promising I'm not going to use your sins against you in the future I'm not going to mention them certainly not in a pejorative way ever again now, if I forgive you in my heart, then I'm not going to make that promise to you. I'm going to make a commitment to myself that rather than cultivating that root of bitterness and reminding myself of um, what you've done, and seeing your face on a golf ball that I like to drive hundred <laughs> yards, or on a baseball bat that I like to pulverize, you know, with my Louisville slugger or on a dartboard or something, I'm going to see your face with the words, I've forgiven you, written. All over it. So that's the first promise. I'm not going to dwell on it myself. Second promise is, and this is if you verbally grant someone forgiveness. You can't make this promise uh, if you forgive somebody in your heart because you may have to go back and talk to other people about it. But you're promising, secondly, not to um, tell other people about it. So I promise I'm not going to bring it up to you again. I'm not going to dwell on it myself. And I'm not going to tell other people about it. Those are the three promises of forgiveness. Next, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. This is what really hangs a lot of people up. If someone sins against you, it's incumbent upon you as a Christian to forgive that person as you've been forgiven in Christ. However, it's incumbent upon the other person, the person who's offended you, to earn back the trust that he's lost. You hand him forgiveness on a silver platter, you're not required to hand him the trust back. Forgiveness is instantaneous. Trust may take time. He's got to be willing to earn the trust back over time for uh, um, as a result of losing some trust because of his sin. The only thing you've got to do is you've got to be willing to, to little by little, little, incrementally, give him back the trust that he's earning. Love believes all things. It puts the best interpretation on things. So if you love him, you've got to be willing to give him a fighting chance to earn the trust back that he's lost. But you don't necessarily have to hand him trust back on a silver platter. In some cases, I would argue, it's, it's foolish for you to trust an unfaithful man. Forgiveness does not focus on secondary causes, but on the sovereignty of God. Joseph had to learn to trust in God's sovereignty. We sometimes think that when Joseph was sold into slavery, he was waving to his brothers through this you know, cage that he was in, Saying, "Okay, guys, don't worry about it. You'll see. You mean it for evil, but God meant it for good." And, and as he's, you know, as he's traveling off in the distance, he's humming Romans 8:28 and 29 to himself. That's not what happened. Listen to the account as it's recorded in Genesis 42:21. This is when his brothers are standing before him. He's not yet revealed. He's the second in command of Egypt. His brothers, have not, he's not yet revealed to his brothers that he's their brother, and they're terrified. They said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul. The distress of his soul. Does that sound like, don't worry, everything's cool. (laughs) We saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet he would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. In the final analysis, God could have prevented the offense that tempt us to get bitter, but he didn't. Forgiveness is not on... uh, Forgiveness focuses not on the offender who sinned against us, but on God who allowed us. Sort of like Job. When he lost everything in the first chapter, he didn't say it was the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans or the fire that fell from heaven or the wind from the east. He knew it was God and he worshiped God. He knew that God could have stopped it and he had a purpose for it. Number seven, forgiveness is an act of the will, not the emotions. If your offender repents, you must forgive him quickly. Jesus phrased this in such a way as to make it clear that in the absence of evidence to the contrary, you've got to take your offender at his word. If he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day returns saying I repent, you've got to forgive him. So even if it's the seventh time in the day that he asks you to do it, you're required to forgive him. Now that's not to say, you know, after the third or fourth time, you can't say, no, wait a minute, brother, hold on. You know, you, you asked me to forgive you, you punched me in the nose, I forgave you. Then you came back 10 minutes later and you did it again and I, I forgave you. I'm, I'm willing to forgive you, but let's sit down and talk about what you mean when you say, I repent. I mean, you can talk to him about the sincerity of his forgiveness. But at the end of the day, you know, if he says, Well, look, you know, I'm a new Christian, I just got saved last week and, and and I've had this temper and I'm sleep deprived. I mean, whatever. I mean at some point, you know, you may have to just forgive him if he's sincere. You're to do it as an act of your will in obedience to God. If you wait until you feel like forgiving someone, before you forgive him, you may never obey the Lord's command. Sometimes when I have to forgive someone, I pray something like this. Lord, you see what brother so-and-so did to me, and you know that what I really, really feel like doing is clobbering him, but I know that's not what you want me to do. So, as an act of my will, in obedience to you, I'm going to impute my forgiveness to him just like you've imputed your forgiveness and imputed your righteousness to me. And then after I do that, the most amazing things happens. As I start to think of him as though he's forgiven, as I start to love my enemy, as I start to bless him who curses me and do good to him... Uh, uh, who bless those who cr- uh, do good to him, who hates me and pray for him, who despitefully uses me and persecutes me, as I overcome his evil with good, my feelings start to change. And that's the thing about being a Christian. You know. And so, so many people, they won't forgive because they're waiting for their feelings to change. But as a Christian, we obey and then our feelings change. I mean, <laughs> so many things I do every day, I do against my feelings. The first thing I did this morning, I did against my feelings. I got out of bed. You say, but isn't it hypocrisy to go against your feelings? No, it's not hypocrisy to feel one way and do something else. It's, hypocr- it's hypocrisy to profess one thing and do something else. If I were to stand up here and tell you, oh, I just loved getting out of bed this morning. Okay, then you call me a hypocrite. But we, we have to do things against our feelings because that's what God calls us to do. All right. Are there any questions? Like I said at the conference, if you have a question, we, we won't assume it's um, something going on in your life. You know, Maybe you have a question about a friend or something. Where would a person buy that second tube of toothpaste? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, the first thing you have to do is, is realize that for, forgetting is not a requirement. You don't have to forget. It's not, you don't have to forget in the sense of having amnesia in order to forgive someone. Forgetting is the result of forgiving, it's not the means of it. It's the last step, not the first step. It's the last step, it step if it happens at all. So, you know, again, I think as you um, respond biblically to the hurt, as you, you th- change the way you think and, and treat the, your offender once you've forgiven him as though he's been forgiven in time, the intensity of the memories will decrease. The frequency of the memories should decrease. Um... And even the painfulness of the memory in time ought to diminish some. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't happen, it's still no big deal. You can still forgive somebody and, and, and still have, you know, met remembrances. Okay, so the biggest thing for me, okay, I mean, this has to be driven by your conscience. The biggest thing for me is I've got to realize that if I don't do this, I'm sinning. God tells me I have got to forgive and it is the fact that this is required of me and that if I don't do it, I'm sinning. Um, that gives me the greatest motivation. Now, I really only gave you about a third of the book. In the book, there's a, this, the next section of the book talks about um, in great detail how to turn this forensic scientific forgiveness into emotional forgiveness. And there's a whole lot of things that you can do in order to do that. But I'll tell you the essence of it is you have got to start changing the way you think about that person and the way you respond to that person but there's a lot that you can actually do in practical terms to go from a forensic forgiveness to an emotional forgiveness yes so if if i if if i uh if you sin against me and uh, it's just between you and I, no one knows about it. When I say I forgive you, then it's, there's no reason for me to th- say it to anyone else. The, the matter is closed. I've forgiven you. Uh, I'm not going to bring it up to you, and there's no reason for me to tell someone else. If, if someone else has a biblical need to know, then I'm going to put pressure on you to disclose that to the people who have a biblical need to know before I go and disclose it to them, and, you know, and if you're not willing, then I may have to. Does that answer your question? No, that's a that that's a that's a different situation. That I did basically cover that. No, sir. You really? Do your elders know that you've done this? Does your board know that you've done this? No. Well, look. You know, this is something that um, may disqualify you from ministry, and I really want would like a commitment from you that you'd go and voluntarily disclose this with them. I'll be happy to talk to them, um, and uh, and then if not, then you know they're going to put me in a position where I have to. See. Okay. Uh-huh. If 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 I'm offended let's say it's a business deal mm-hmm. and it's a clear offense. Mm-hmm. And i when, when you say with, with a believer. Yes. Okay. And, and, and when you say forgiveness is imputed, that's a legal term, right? That means mm-hmm. whether I feel forgiveness or not, mm-hmm. I'm granting it. Right. So you grant forgiveness to this partner mm-hmm. and no, wait, no, what, I mean, what about restitution? Is he, is this? he required well, to make suppose, restitution? Suppose, let's just say I've... You're going to eat it, okay. I, I've just decided to... Eat it, over. okay, all right. Hmm. And not, let's just say 10 years down the road, another situation comes up with another person who says, hey, this guy that I'm going to go into this business with is the same guy that did what he did to me. Now, am I in the wrong to use the word warn him of, of a potential issue if um I, i'd be careful with that um first of all 10 years have gone by for all you know the guy could have repented. so you'd be you, you might be in danger of really misrepresenting him if you said anything but the uh, the other thing i mean i think you could say well we, we did have an issue but we've got it covered right now um but you know you may want to go back and talk to him about that concern and i'd send him back to him okay. Because, again, you know, we have, a, when, when the Bible speaks and it does in several places about the importance of having a good reputation and a good name, that's not just talking about us. We have the responsibility, as much as we're able, to protect the good name and reputation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we really have to be careful, you know, about doing that. Um, so, again, unless, if you went to the person and, went, um, you know, he was unwilling to make restitution. You know that might the, be a different story because then um, then the, the deal may not be totally totally cleared up. But even then, if you granted him forgiveness, um, it, it might be real tricky for you to be able for you to be able to bring that up again. If you if you if you grant someone forgiveness, um, it really implies that you're going to bury it as much as you're able. Ethetic is the uh, is a transliteration of the Greek word nutheteo, which means to admonish, to warn, to counsel, and it's a it's a a, a kind of um, it's a kind of admonition, it's a kind of counseling that is verbal. It presupposes the existence of a problem that has to be corrected, and it's done out of very loving motives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. essentially when the person is not forgiving you. Well, then you have to confront him. Then you've got to do Luke 17. Now now, now listen, honey. Um, You know, three hours ago I asked you to forgive me and you haven't said a word to me. Um, Are you going to, have you really, really forgiven me? Yes, I've forgiven you, but my feelings are still hurt. All right, well, do you think you could do something to demonstrate to me that you're working on your hurt feelings, like put a smile on your face? (laughs) I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Yes, sir. You have shared some general principles, obviously, to, to resolve conflict. Do you have any additional, additional comments in regards to uh, estrangement of a parent with a child or a sibling with a sibling? Where in, in uh, both parties are professing believers? I'm not sure I understand the question. So you've got a sibling and a sibling. They're... they're have they forgiven each other, haven't they? Yeah, let, let me let me let me say first of all, welcome to my world. <laughs> um, no, the Bible really does uh, address that. Um, you know, you have these two women in Philippians who couldn't get along with each other, Odius and Syntyche, and Utica uh, and Syntyche. We sometimes refer to them as Odious and soon Touchy, but. <laughs> They couldn't get along with each other, and so sometimes uh, you need a true yoke fellow. When you have situations like that, the best thing to do is to urge, uh, urge the, the person, both of them, to come before a brother. Is it true that there's not one wise man among you who shall be able to judge between brothers? If he will not hear you, take with you one or two witnesses. I mean, sometimes you've got to go outside of the, um, of the context of the people involved and get somebody else involved to try to be a true peacemaker, a yoke fellow. Uh, that's, the, that's the best principle. If there's any doubt as to whether, they're, they're, um, whether they've kissed and made up, the best thing to do as a rule is to try to urge them to find someone who will sit down with them, hear both sides of the story, and try to bring about a real, enduring, lasting peace. Now again, you know, if you forgive somebody, you, you don't have to be their best friend after that. But you have to give them a fighting chance to earn the trust back. But I mean, it should be apparent to the people involved that the bitterness is squashed, it's gone, and that they're making an effort to be civil to each other. All right. Well, thank you very much again. It's been my pleasure to be here. Um, let me uh, let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for the fact that it convicts us, but does more than convicts us. It it corrects us. Lord, I pray for all of us is forgiveness is something we have to grant on a regular basis that you'd help us to be able to determine if we're struggling with bitterness and give us the grace always to be able to um, forgive those who sin against us in the same way that Christ has forgiven us of our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.